0: That seems to me pretty convincing that there was a dead child in the trunk of the mother's car. Is that what it meant to you? You know, she actually had created fictitious people, created fictitious
1: email accounts. Well, it, this tells me that, that there's a level of planning, but not great planning. Low criminal sophistication in this case. Hello, and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. I'm your host, Jim Clemente, with my co-host, Francie Hakes. Hi, Jim. How are you doing, Francie? Good. Well, we're back with FBI agent Nick Savage um, from the Washington Field Office of the FBI.
0: And maybe the best name for an FBI agent in the history of FBI agents.
1: That is kind of a great name, by the way, Nick. (laughs) Thanks for coming.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: Do you ever get that... um, Nick Savage, FBI. I mean, can we please talk about doing the the scripted TV version of that, of you?
0: That's right. You
2: know, it's funny. I I definitely get it a lot. And I can remember one time I was speaking with a woman who asked me my name. And when I told her, she got angry because she thought that I had lied to her. (laughs) She said, no, I want your real name.
0: Wow. That's great.
1: Well, (laughs) The the only other name like that that I've ever heard it was a football player at Fordham named Wally Slaughter, and he was on the front line, and you didn't want to line up in front of him. That's for sure. Uh, some people <laughs> are just perfect. named for what they do, that's all. That's right. Well, thanks for coming back, and today we're going to jump right in and talk about your worst case. So please, what kind of case was it?
2: with was the Casey Anthony case. It oh. was uh, the last investigation that I worked as a street agent uh, when I was in Orlando, right before reporting to headquarters and specifically the uh, at NICMEC, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children up in Alexandria.
1: And so how did you get involved in the Casey Anthony case? Um, and by the way, that was the murder of Casey Anthony's two-year-old daughter Kaylee Anthony
2: so I was the so a couple things one I was the one of the crimes against children coordinators for the Tampa division and then I had a, a, I also ran the task force the innocent images task force and I happened to have some other collateral duties which consisted of the FBI's CART team the child abduction rapid deployment team and the state of Florida's CART team uh, which was very similar so at that point in my career, I did a lot of things that were specifically child-related.
1: Yeah, obviously, we interacted and worked on the card teams at the same time when I was in the behavioral analysis unit. We had a lot of work out there, by the way. Florida seems to be an extremely active state with respect to child abductions.
0: Well, and did you know that Florida and California are, and I think maybe Texas might be right up there, Are the biggest states for registered sex offenders in the country?
2: Yeah, it was um, definitely no shortage of work uh, there, and a number of high-profile child homicide homicides and some abduction abductions as well. So it was was a very busy time in in my career.
0: And so, Nick, how did you get the what? What kind of call did you get? Did you get that initial call with the child's disappearance? Did you respond early, or did you become only involved once the child's uh, body was found?
2: No, actually, when things started to happen, uh, I actually had reached out to Orange County. And, and again, we had uh, you know, a relationship. It wasn't certainly um, as good as it was post this investigation, but... I was just essentially calling them to offer offer FBI resources and and any help that they may need. And it really, it wasn't until kind of the allegations where she was alleging that the child had been kidnapped by at that time, uh, Zanny, the
1: nanny,
2: um, Fernandez Gonzalez, that, that we really, that I became involved, uh, you know, more intimately with the case. And, um, yeah, you know, I guess that was really the beginning of it.
0: And so, what what was your what was your involvement? You called to to offer resources once you heard that there was a kidnapping allegation. And did they accept your offer? Did you get involved at that early stage?
2: So, Orange County, um, they were happy with the, the phone call, but uh, politely declined any sort of assistance from the FBI. Uh, and it wasn't until later, when the investigation it was like a couple weeks later that it to garner national attention, that it was headquarters that kind of dictated that we, the FBI, were going to open an investigation on this matter. So I ended up going back to Orange County and, and, and I said, look, here's the deal. You know, I'm kind of being mandated to open an investigation. You know, we all know that it is not good to have parallel investigations on, on the same matter and it would really behoove both sides if we work together. And that was kind of Good move.
1: how Excellent.
2: things started.
1: Yeah, well, I remember this case very well as well during that time period. And um, I know that the behavioral analysis unit was sort of chomping at the bit to, to get involved, um, and we, we eventually did. But talk a little bit about what you did. Uh, were you boots on the ground there? What, what, did, what did you do?
2: You I know, mean, it's funny because at first— uh, it was more of a very kind of, uh, tangential, uh, role. And what we'd agreed initially was that the FBI would handle all leads, uh, from out of state that we would kind of start sending, you know, cause at that point when it started gathering national attention, there were Kaylee sightings all over the country. And at that time, uh, Cindy Anthony was extremely vocal. About, she knew that the FBI was was involved. I, I went over with John Allen, who was the sergeant for Orange County, introduced myself, and you know once she realized that the FBI had was now involved, she was very vocal, was on TV a lot, essentially accusing the FBI of not doing enough, of not following up on leads. So, you know that's kind of how things started, but it was really kind of my foot in the door to where I began developing that relationship with Orange County and developing those friendships that ultimately led to, you know, really a true partnership in this investigation.
0: So where were you or what was your involvement once um, it w- it became obvious because the child's body was found, it became obvious that she had not been taken out of state or or probably not even kidnapped at all. And then the eye of law enforcement turned to the mother. What, what was your involvement in that stage?
2: I was even, even before that, Francie, it was, you know, when I, when I went to inspect a car or look at it, when, as soon as I opened that trunk, I mean, the, the decomposition smell was, well, it, it was, it was human decomp. I mean, it certainly smelled like that. If you've ever smelled a decomposing body. It's something that you never, ever forget. So as soon as I kind of was able to to smell that the trunk of the car, I kind of had a good idea, you know, kind of, you know, what was going on. And, you know, it it was kind of a, a tricky time in the investigation because, you know, we happened to find the hair, a hair that was in the back of the car. And that hair showed signs of there was a death band on it. It, it. it started to show signs of decomposition. And the thing that was interesting about that hair was that we knew a couple things about it. We knew that the hair was untreated. And we also knew that that mitochondrial DNA, that, the, that it had a mitochondrial line of DNA, essentially saying that it was in the mother's line. So we knew that it had to either be Casey, Kaylee, or Cindy. Grandmother, daughter, child. We also knew that Cindy and Casey colored their hair. So again, very circumstantial, but we had a hair that was untreated that was in the mitochondrial line.
1: Mitochondrial All right, so, DNA line. so if you could just explain to our listeners. So when you said it has a death band on it, it's um postmortem banding that happens only to hairs that are attached to the victim when they're dead and after they're dead it it's not a hair that somebody pulled out from the victim but it actually was on a dead body and it cre- and and shortly after death that a band occurs near the root that you can tell that forensically we can tell that this was on the, the 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 body of somebody when they died and after they died and then it came off later right
0: Correct. Yes. Well, and Nick, I want to back up for just one second. I remember following this trial very closely, and the smell of decomposition in the trunk of the car, and that was Casey Anthony's car, the smell of decomp in the car and this hair banding, these were super important pieces of evidence evidence in the trial, and yet Casey Anthony didn't get convicted. Right. So that must have been incredibly frustrating for you as you went forward because— That seems to me pretty convincing that there was a dead child in the trunk of the mother's car. Is that what it meant to you?
2: It's what it absolutely meant to me. And, um, you know, I thought that we had built a very strong case that would have been, um, that we could have charged and actually gone to trial with even before we discovered the remains of Kaylee. So I was confident even before the the recovery of her body that we kind of had enough. I mean, again, in cases like this, what makes it difficult is everything is circumstantial. Unless you have an eyewitness, unless you have a statement from the accused who has a constitutional right not to make a statement, and the fact that you had a victim that was deceased every single everything that we had every piece of evidence was circumstantial in this case
1: but what about what about the fact that she you mentioned zanny the nanny before she she came up with this ridiculous scenario that she had been going to work at universal studios and dropping the baby off at zanny the nanny every day and then it turned out that she didn't even exist and didn't she actually Lie to the detectives about working at Universal and then go all the way to like talking her way past the guard, saying she left her ID at work, walking them into Universal, walking them into a building, going up to the third floor, walking down the hall, and putting her hand on the door to a random office and saying, Then, uh, actually, I don't work here.
2: That's that was it, you know, in, I mean,
0: brazen. It, in
1: that, incredibly you know, brazen, brazen. <laughs> And, and, you know, and just arrogant and such a pathological liar. And, I mean, all that information was given to the jury, right?
2: Yeah, no, she, she was a great liar. I mean, she just, she wasn't just a pathological liar. She was a great liar. And she had this this ability to take nuggets of truth and then spin these elaborate lies around it, so that if you went back and tried to get to the heart of the matter, once you got back to the nugget of truth, most people thought, oh, maybe she's telling the truth because that's truthful. And she was so unbelievably good at this. Yeah, you know, you talk about universal. You know, she actually had created fictitious people, created fictitious email accounts of people who she claimed worked at Universal with her, and then she would take these emails that she would write, and she would leave them laying around the house so her mother would find them in in furtherance of this lie that she worked there. She would have fake calendars, fake meetings, I mean, fake correspondence. I mean, that's how elaborate and how detailed you know, these lies initially were.
1: Well... Obviously, that tells you a lot about premeditation, I suppose. What I'd like to talk about next is what Casey Anthony did after Kaylee went missing and get into the details of her behavior.
2: Yeah, no, Jim, I would love to talk about that because her behavior wasn't like anything I'd ever seen before. <laughs>
1: Welcome to your next true crime obsession. Don't miss new BritBox original drama, The Sixth Commandment, which The Guardian calls as immaculate a piece of TV as you will ever see.
2: You will hear evidence of extreme gaslighting.
0: Help me, please. I am going to be
1: waiting on you, hand and foot. Stream this plus the best selection of British true crime series anywhere, only on BritBox. Once you start investigating, you won't be able to turn away. Start streaming today with a free trial at BritBox.com. So after Casey reported Kaylee missing, what did she do with her personal life?
0: Yeah. Did she act like a grieving, frantic parent?
2: Yeah. Anything but, which is, you know, which was certainly troubling uh, because she wasn't, as you alluded to, wasn't acting like you would suspect a mother who had had a child kidnapped would react. You know, what Casey did instead was she went out and partied like a rock star. And one of the things she went out and did was she went to the Fusion nightclub, and you can see the pictures online where she entered herself into the hot body competition.
0: Wait, where she actually took wait second place. Wait, what? She did. She entered what? The hot body
2: competition.
1: And how soon after Kaylee went missing did she do this?
2: Um, within days.
0: Are you kidding? The, what I don't know, Jim. I'm not an expert on psychopaths, but that certainly sounds like psychopath kind of behavior, someone completely lacking empathy to me.
1: Absolutely. And on top of that, it sounds a lot like Susan Smith behavior. Mm-hmm. Was she trying to get, get in with any particular guy at that point?
2: You know, it was one of the things that Casey... It's almost like a bad habit. Anytime she would meet a guy... He was the guy. And, you know, it, it kind of, in my opinion, went directly toward motive. And what had happened, just backing up a few days, was Casey, her mom and dad had taken vacation time, and Kaylee had spent uh, pretty much a week with her grandparents. And during that week, Casey went out and parted like a rock star. And during that time, she actually met a, a young man. Uh, and during that time, practically moved in with him. And you know, she was cooking, cleaning. You know, she was—he was the one that she was going to spend the rest of her life with. And so she continues to party like a rock star for that week. And then, interestingly enough, when the week was over, you know, George and Cindy had to go back to work, and essentially told Casey. You are now responsible for your child. And certainly my opinion, but I believe that Casey felt as though if she couldn't maintain that rock star star lifestyle that she was going to essentially lose this man that she was going to spend the rest of her life with. I think that was kind of – that was part of the motive. I mean, and I can certainly talk more about what I believe – other parts of that motive would be, but that certainly, in my opinion, played a contributing factor to the death of Kaylee Anthony.
0: Well, Nick, what I um, am interested to know is about this man that Casey Anthony started dating and may have formed part part of the motive in the murder of Kaylee Anthony for, what was his, what were his thoughts? Was he saying something to her about, oh, I never want to have kids, or did he know she had a child? What was his role in all of that?
2: You know, it It wasn't until we actually polygraphed him that we kind of learned, you know, the deep-seated guilt that he had. He knew that, he knew a couple things. He knew that she had a daughter, (laughs) and he actually felt bad that he'd never asked more about where the baby was. He just assumed that the baby wasn't around. And, I mean, he was a young man. You know, he wanted to spend time with Casey. He wasn't about to say, hey, you know, where's your daughter? That was number one. The other thing that we determined or we found during the polygraph that he probably wouldn't have told anybody, he told Casey that he only wanted sons that he did not want a daughter. And he resented having made that statement. And it wasn't until later when, you know, Kaylee was discovered, her remains were discovered, that I think he felt guilty thinking that potentially that statement could have contributed to the child's death.
0: But you never had the sense that that's what he intended.
2: No, absolutely not. I mean, no, no, without question. But it was just something that that we'd learned during, again, during the polygraph that, you know, he'd come clean with the fact that he'd made that statement to her. But no, nothing, no ill intent toward that, you know, with respect to that statement at all.
1: So she got very obsessive about guys and would sort of latch onto them, throw everything into it. This is for life. I mean, that kind of behavior a lot of times scares guys out of relationships. What did he think about it?
2: Uh, I think initially, I mean, you know, Casey was a good-looking young woman. Uh, She was kind of doting on him, and I don't think, you know, I think at first he kind of liked it. You know, there, there wasn't anything that he thought was strange or, or odd. Uh, So I don't think he minded at all.
1: Mm-hmm. During the course of the trial, and actually – Part of this came out obviously during the in- investigation. Um, there was some indications that she was looking online for ether or something like that. Uh, tell us about that.
2: It was chloroform. Yeah, um, some of the searches that she had uh, that she had done was how to ma- how, how to manufacture chloroform. Uh, we actually believed. There could have been some traces of chloroform, even though it's a it's highly volatile uh, in nature, um, that we potentially could have uh, some traces of that. Um, and there were some other searches, neck breaking, um, that she kind of exhibited. I mean, there were a lot of little things that she had been looking up online that all kind of went toward just just, again, circumstantial but just kind of some abnormal searches
0: Well, and Nick, online. The, I think one of the m- most awful things about this case during the trial was all the controversy around the computer evidence. And as you say, someone who ends up with a dead child having done those kind of computer searches, it certainly suggests premeditation and suggests she was looking for ways to figure out how to kill her child. But talk a little bit about why the computer evidence was so controversial. First of all, did the FBI do those computer forensic searches, or was that the local police?
2: No, the local police had done it, and, and they did a good job. Part of the problem, and later it became an issue, was that one of the tools that was used um, to do the, the extraction and, and then later the analysis, even though it, it found the artifacts of those searches what it did was you know there're multiple artifacts on your computer it's not you know there're different places where these these little nuggets of uh, reside and what this tool did was it included duplicates so anytime it came across some remnant or artifact of one of these hits it was counting it as a unique search so it gave the impression that it wasn't just one search, but that it was multiple searches for the same thing. And it's kind of why, you know, it's it's a good lesson for anybody who does forensic analysis um, with respect to computers. It, it's kind of why you need to test and validate your tools so you know exactly what that tool is doing, what it's counting, so that you know that the results you get are in fact accurate results. It wasn't that that the the local sheriff's office had done anything wrong with the application. It wasn't it was just that they didn't understand again what the tool actually did.
0: And that was and that was an opportunity for the defense to make it look like that you could not rely upon this evidence, right?
2: Correct. It was actually when it was discovered that it it kind of precluded the government from making any then further references about those search terms. So we we simply weren't allowed to talk about them anymore.
0: Wow. And that was major evidence.
2: Uh, Certainly it was definitely, yeah, it was major evidence without question.
1: So one of the other things that came up during the trial was the defense strategy, or the defense claim at least, that Casey Anthony was actually the victim of sexual victimization by her father. Um, Was there ever any actual evidence of that? Was there any uh, weight to that claim?
2: No, there was just the initial allegations that Casey had made, and they were not only directed toward George, but were also directed toward her brother Lee as well.
1: And so nothing ever came of that?
2: Well, it's a matter of public record. Um, you know, we actually did a paternity test on her brother to see if, in fact, if he could be the father of Kaylee. And And he wasn't. But in a strange sort of way, it was almost as if it was kept quiet, that, you know, if somebody accused me of doing something like that, I would be rather loud. And, you know, it was kind of, again, Jim, getting back to like the behavior side of things, Mm -hmm. the reaction or the response to those allegations just were strange.
0: So were they?
2: They weren't what you would you would you would think.
0: Casey Anthony made allegations against both her father and her brother, right? Correct. But had any of those allegations ever been made, you know, prior to the time when she was sitting in trial for murder?
1: No, no. And also, um, wasn't, uh, as I recall, wasn't George, her father, extremely cooperative with police and the FBI throughout the entire investigation?
2: To a point. Certainly, I don't think they were as cooperative as, as I'd wanted or I would have liked. But there, there was a level of cooperation, yes.
0: Do you think they were conflicted about cooperating considering it was their daughter on trial for murder?
2: Uh, without question. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And certainly it's conjecture on my part as to to why I believe a lot of that. But, you know, there were things that they did um, again that, you know, George having been a former law enforcement officer, you know, I think instinctively, I think his gut was telling him one thing, but then he certainly had to wrestle with the fact that it was his daughter and that you know, his actions or things that he may have been able to contribute to the investigation could have led to, you know, the, the conviction of his daughter. And I think that was something that was just very, very difficult. I think it would be difficult for anybody, but I think it was especially difficult for George.
1: But you, you were sort of left, it seems, with the feeling that, um, that there might have been some truth to these allegations?
2: You know what? It was strange. And again, when when I talked earlier about Casey spinning elaborate lies around nuggets of truth, I mean, especially on her brother's side, I just thought if in fact there was something there that it could have turned out that it he could have been the father of the child, it provided her with an alibi that she was somehow sexually abused and not a willing participant in any activity. And again, pure conjecture, but Again, you know, I confronted, you know, he was confronted on these allegations and the response was not what I would have expected.
1: Okay, but either way, even if she was the victim of sexual abuse or sexual victimization, that has nothing to do with and certainly in no way justifies her behavior with Kaylee. So how how was it that the jury somehow found her innocent of this premeditated murder?
0: Oh, Jim Clementi, they didn't find her innocent; they just found her not guilty.
1: Well, they must have believed her innocent to find her not guilty.
0: Clarify. Well,
2: certainly it wasn't it wasn't hung, so there was some agreement, and you know, it, it, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it was pretty clear to me. Um, You know, I I know some recent discussion has come out with respect to, I know Judge Perry believes that maybe the child had, had drowned, and that was certainly alluded to during the trial. And, you know, again, it's just my opinion, but my opinion is that the child had been drowned, was done so on purpose as part of a premeditated act, and that after the child had drowned, Casey then removes Kaylee from the pool, sets the baby down next to the pool, the same place where the cadaver dog hits in the yard, and then later in other places in the yard. And just what happened around that time events where, you know, the neighbor reports Casey's car being backed into the driveway. And he reported that it had never been backed into the driveway ever. The fact that Casey went to a neighbor's house to borrow a shovel because according to the neighbor, Casey was going to chop down some weeds in the backyard. Again, just nothing that she'd ever done before. And then the fact that you have the smell in the back of the car. You know, one of the things that we did was we worked with Arpod Voss, who was just a world famous anthropologist that who studied at the body farm, who actually took air samples from the trunk. And what he was able to show was that the air samples were consistent with decomposition, albeit mammal decomposition, because you cannot distinguish between uh, a mammal and, and a human based on those initial studies. But what he believed was that that the, that the child would have had, the Kaylee would have been in the trunk of that car maybe up to three days. And if you go back to an initial fight that we believe occurred in the Anthony home, over an incident between Cindy and, and Casey, it, after that fight, approximately three days would have gone by right up until the beginning of the hot body competition. And it's my opinion that the child was killed, placed in the back of that trunk. She rode around with the baby in the back of her car for a period of time, disposed of the body, and then subsequently went to the hot body competition. But in the meantime... Casey knew the smell was in the back of that car, and what she began to do was she began to take measures in order to mask that smell by alluding that her father, by actually sending text messages saying, my father must have hit a squirrel because there's some smell in my car. And then the other thing, too, with throwing the bag of garbage in her trunk, the way in which Again, my opinion, the way her mind worked was that if somebody had been in that car and said to her, Casey, why does your car smell? She would have said something along the lines of like, oh, my God, I was taking the garbage out. It's in the back of my trunk. I must have forgotten about it. And that was this whole notion of like, oh, it was the, it was the, the garbage in the back and the decomposing pizza that was the smell, not the human decomposition.
1: Right. Well, this tells me that that there's a level of planning, but not great planning. Low criminal sophistication in this case. Um, And obviously, uh, she wanted to cover up the fact that her daughter was dead and obviously basically got away with murder. Um, But I remember at the time, uh, because the autopsy came back and said that they couldn't actually determine what the uh, what the cause of death was, that uh, I remember our, our unit, and, and I was probably the most vocal member of that unit, uh, told the prosecutors that I did not think they should charge her with first-degree murder, even though sh- there was plenty of indications of preparation and planning. Um, but because we didn't know actually how she died, that I thought that they should have just gone for something like second-degree murder um, or manslaughter just because I didn't think that they were going to be able to get that past the jury um, because they could not put in scientific evidence of how she was actually killed. And I remember also the, the duct tape uh, being an issue um, that they believed that the prosecution theory was that the duct tape was put on um, prior to death and that it may have contributed to the death. Um, however, there was no forensic evidence to actually back that up, and I thought maybe it was placed on the mouth in order to stop the gases from seeping out of there, and it was probably post-death, uh, particularly if she had drowned. Um, so yes. I, just, I just thought or that—
2: water. Excuse me. I was going to say, or water. If the baby had drowned, and if there, are, there was water in her lungs— And, you know, that that tape could have been there, much like you alluded to, to prevent something from actually coming out.
1: Right.
0: Or for me, it seems kind of like someone who has some vague idea in her mind that if she wants to tell everybody the child's been kidnapped and the child's body ever does get found, it's probably smart to put duct tape on her like a kidnapper might do. Yeah. Lots of different reasons, I guess. but and the other un-
2: thing that was interesting too was, you know, her remains were actually discovered in, in a hefty bag. And within that hefty bag was a laundry bag. And the thing that was interesting about the laundry bag was that we know that they were sold in sets of three. We happened to recover two of those laundry bags in the Anthony home, but were unable to find the third.
0: Mm.
2: And it's just ironic that there happened to be that same type of bag that was found with the child's remains.
1: Well, ironic or circumst- <laughs> another <laughs> circumstantial evidence, piece of circumstantial evidence that pointed to it being an inside job. Um, well, I don't think we have to ask this, um, <laughs> but we're going to ask it anyway. Um, so why is this the your worst case?
2: Well, you know, it it, it, it may seem cliché but clearly that, that child deserved, um, more justice for, for her death. And, you know, it, it, it was pretty clear to me who was responsible for this child's death. And, you know, it. I'll be honest with you. I mean, it, it, it haunts me to this day. I mean, I still recall listening to the verdict and, you know, Jim, I think you mentioned it earlier, you know, the first degree murder charge actually carried the death penalty. So I wasn't overly shocked when the verdict was not guilty on count one, figuring that the lesser charges included would have been fairly easy to to convict. So needless to say, I was very, very, very shocked at the news that the jury had came back and you know, rendered a verdict that was not guilty. So, you know, it, it's, I don't know. It was a case that I, that it was very unique. Um, there were things that I wish that we could have, I think with some additional cooperation, things may have been a little different. But again, it's just one of those things where, um, I, I believe either you or Francie said it earlier, she got away with murder. And you know what that is um that's something that I have to live with,
0: yeah, well, and Nick, just one last quick question. I've been seeing on the news of some possibility being reported of Casey Anthony and o j. Simpson of all people doing some kind of a reality show together, and I feel like given how you feel about this case, how certainly I feel, and I know Jim feels and many people feel about this case, to have her rewarded essentially rewarded for murdering her child or killing her child and covering it up um, is appalling and is just going to reopen those wounds for those of us who believe so strongly in justice. So how do you feel about that?
2: No, I I would tend to agree. I mean, you know, for her to be able to capitalize on this so-called celebrity uh, following as a result of you know these events is simply tragic uh you know it it, it certainly has a cult like following and certainly I, I i experienced that firsthand uh this case garnered unbelievable amount of worldwide attention and i think people are just fascinated by it. i think you know it it's it's one of those american it's almost shakespearean like mm-hmm. it's almost, or like a greek tragedy i mean it's you know, it's one of these things where I don't think people like her, that people were captivated by who she is and are captivated by this entire incident. And, you know, it's just it's nothing any of us can do. I mean, I certainly am not happy about it, but it is what it is.
1: Well, I will say that, you know, you said it, it might sound cliche. It's not cliche at all. The fact that this case haunts you is a tribute to the fact that you care. And, You know, we know uh, because our careers were also in law enforcement that um, there are cases that will haunt you forever. And it's unfortunate that the justice system has this kind of flaw in it that um, that the jury system can sometimes lead to injustice. And unfortunately, uh, the victims then can never find justice.
0: So, Nick, thank you so much for telling us about your worst case, and I'm sure there are a lot of law enforcement involved in this case who would agree with you it is their worst case. Thank you so much for calling in and taking the time out to talk to us about it.
1: Yeah, We really appreciate
2: it. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for, uh, thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to speak with you. All
1: right. Well, thank you, and uh, if we can... Uh, peel you away from your work again some other time. Maybe we can talk about some other cases that are your best and your worst.
2: Uh, we certainly love it, Jim. Right. Thank you.
1: Signing off now for Best Case, Worst Case. Thank you for listening. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios LA. Engineered and edited by Terrell Parham. Music by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wondery.